Welcome everyone to episode 118, Synthetic Embryos. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm still working on your first question, synthetic Embryos? What's with the inflection there? Why? What do you have doubts? <laughs> is it really an embryo? Is it? Is it real? Can it be? Can it be? Could it be? Possibly. I think it is. It seems it walks like a, an embryo. <laughs> Quack. Oh, <laughs> how are you doing over there? All good? Yeah, I'm hanging in. Awesome. Okay. So we're all good here. We hope you are good out there. It's time for us to get down to business. Make sure you check out our website, stemcellpodcast.com. It's really pretty. You might enjoy looking at it. You know, like a nice Monet, Manet, Cassatt. I don't know. Maybe not. But it's got lots of great information. You can go there and also subscribe to our newsletter and you will find all of our past episodes and other great resources for science and stem cell biology. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to us if you have not done so already. We're on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you subscribe, new episodes will automatically download to your phone. We have a great show ahead today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we are going to be talking with Dr. Nicolas Rivron about his work and latest paper in Nature about creating blastoids. It's not a video game, but rather blastocyst-like cells made from stem cells. You ready, Dalen? I can't wait to talk to this guy, Kiki. This is such a cool innovation. But first, you know, you can't forget... Scientists, we need your votes. Last month, stem cell technologies asked scientists around the world to submit their favorite stem cell images or hashtag stem selfies. <laughs> and boy, did you deliver. With a C-E-L-L, selfies? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be stem selfies. <laughs> and boy, did they deliver. They delivered with the stem selfies. Stem cell posted the 20 finalist stem selfies on their Facebook page and they're now looking for you, dear listeners and stem cell experts, to choose the winner out of the top five. I don't know why you have to be a stem cell expert to identify a good stem selfie. So everybody's invited, as far as I'm concerned. The five images will also be put on display at Stem Cells booth at ISSCR in Melbourne. And voting will continue throughout the conference. I don't know. That might be a liability when you're trying to have a serious conversation with somebody and then they see your face looking silly on a stem selfie that might undermine your credibility. But it'll start a lot of conversations, good for networking. The owner of the image with the most likes by Saturday, June 23rd, will also win something, a $500 travel award to attend the meeting of their choice. Any meeting you wow. want, I recommend something in Vegas to vote. <laughs> Go to our website at www.stemcellpodcast.com and click on the hashtag stem selfie image on the right side, which will take you to the hashtag stem selfie. <laughs> the way you're saying it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not like an internet person. When I see a hashtag, I feel like you have to do something like perform or something. So I'm not of the era 
<laughs> I'm betraying my loserness. But it doesn't take yeah. away from this effort. You should do it anyway, okay? Go to the hashtag Stem Selfie Facebook album and vote, okay? And with that done now, Kika, I want to hear about something more serious and stimulating than looking at a picture of myself. Selfie, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to go vote. That sounds like fun, looking at cool fun. pictures and... Cast your votes, everyone. Okay, serious time now. It's time for science, right? We got the roundup. And where am I going to start? On death. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, if, if we're going to be serious, let's really be serious. So right now there is a scramble going on in India to contain an ongoing outbreak. Oh, they haven't really called it an outbreak yet because it's not a lot. A few people have died, 13 people. They think even more are infected. Uh, this is an outbreak of the virus Nipah. This is a rare and deadly virus with no vaccine, no cure, that has mortality rate of about 70%. This is uh, something that the World Health Organization is considering having the potential to become the next global health emergency. On Monday, the Hindu newspaper reported that a patient with Nipah-like symptoms was under observation in Goa, which is in western India. And this patient, a reportedly 20-year-old man who had traveled to Goa from Kerala, if diagnosed with disease, could be the first case of Nipah infection outside of Kerala since the outbreak began earlier this month. The Nipah virus was first identified in 1999 after an outbreak in Malaysia and Singapore. It's thought to be one of those bat-transmitted diseases. So other, other mammals, bats, pigs, other animals. This particular virus is thought to have begun with a family in the coastal Kerala city of Kozikode. And there were three bats found in the family well the family was thought to have ingested water from the well. However, no virus was discovered in the bats when the bats were tested. So there, there's still an open question there about where it came from. According to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, people can be infected with the Nipah virus after direct contact with patients of disease. So family members and caregivers are most likely to contract it. And yes, it's an ongoing concern Ebola and Zika were also, in addition to Nipah, on the WHO's 2018 list of diseases that pose a public health risk because of their epidemic potential and for which there are no or insufficient countermeasures. And uh, related to this news, Ebola, there is an ongoing outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And now that we have a vaccine, there is ring vaccination attempt being made in that area for this Ebola Zaire strain of the disease in the hopes that it can be contained. There are concerns, though, about the Ebola outbreak in this area. However, because it has taken place along a, a very prominent river, which is attributed to a lot of travel, and so the potential for spread of the disease is a lot larger than previous outbreaks that have happened in more remote regions. So, Death! Very grave. That story is serious, but on the grave end of serious. And I'm worried because one of these days, they're either tremendously like quickly or far easy to spread or very deadly, it seems like, in the past few years, but not both. 
But I mean, how long is it going to take before we get two out of two and then we're all host? It's a big question, isn't it? You know, when the pandemic is going to hit. It's not just the outbreak, the epidemic, it's that pandemic concern. And, you know, our population is growing and people are living in closer and closer proximity, traveling more and more. And yeah, who knows? Who knows? Take every day Pretty as it scary. comes. No, don't be scared. Take every day as it comes. <laughs> a ray of sunshine and the lovely scent of a rose as you step out the front of your house on, the, on a beautiful spring day. Yeah, I live in Portland, Oregon, otherwise known as Rose City. And so this next story has a lot of personal interest because I step out of my house and I have some rose bushes right outside my door and they're blooming right now. And I go outside and I smell the roses and one bush is so fragrant and it smells kind of of candy and strawberries and this beautiful, wonderful odor. And there's another that has a very typical rose scent. And then I have a couple of bushes. They don't smell at all. And I go, what's wrong with you? You're so pretty, but you don't smell. Why don't you smell? What is wrong with it? You know, there's that Shakespearean phrase, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? This reference to roses smelling sweet, but they don't all do. And the reason is that because rose breeders have been just breeding the roses to be showy and not smelly. And in their attempts to get pretty roses with beautiful colors and lots of foliage, they have lost aspects of the odors for roses. And so in a new study in the April 30th issue of Nature Genetics, researchers have been trying to decode the genetics of an heirloom variety a fragrant pink china rose called Old Blush, to discover new targets that could be tweaked to bring the rose scent back into the rose bush. So this new paper focused on this Old Blush or Rosa chinensis strain, and this is one of the major contributors to what are now modern hybrids that have been mixed with European or Middle Eastern lineages. And some of the genes in the rose work in opposing ways to each other. So some turn on to create scent while others shut down the color pigments or the anthocyanins that are needed for the pretty petals. And so understanding how the genes work together or oppose each other could help bring back, I don't want to say the stink to the rose, (laughs) the scent, the beautiful odor that we love, that sweet smell to more strains of roses to help modern breeders not have to have that trade-off anymore. Maybe figure it out. Oh, the sweet stench. You know, <laughs> that's, right. that's my goal. I always, and it's like bittersweet when I see the strawberries that are like as big as a fist. Because yeah. I'm, I'm like, that's so much strawberry, but I know that it's going to be tasteless. So why can't we have them both? Are they mutually exclusive? Can you not have one and the other? Come on, this is the modern era. Give me me a stinky, beautiful flower, please. That's right. And a a little sweet strawberry, a big street strawberry, a big, pretty, stinky flower, all these things. We want it all. Give it to us. (laughs) That's right. I don't want to be let down on any account. Oh, like the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were totally let down. They were, you know, taken out by the Chicksa Club asteroid impact. The Chicksa Club impact is the impact that created the 
Gulf of Mexico. There's a impact crater that's massive, and it the impact killed all the dinosaurs. We know this. However, something that has been unknown, or at least we haven't been able to support, is the predicted aspect of what would happen other than killing the dinosaurs. What would happen to the atmosphere, right? There's been a shortcoming as a result of insufficient carbonate-based fossils. Normally what we do to figure out stuff that happened in the atmosphere, to figure out how much carbon dioxide or oxygen was in the atmosphere, researchers use carbonate-based life forms, their fossils, to be able to look at the levels of different oxygen isotope compounds. And so a researcher at the University of Missouri, Ken McLeod, he actually looked at a different indicator, which were the bones of fossilized fish debris. So he went searching for fish teeth, fish bones, things that would have fossilized much better than those carbonate materials, which are still lacking. And this study, what they discovered is that the Chicxa Club impact, in addition to destroying so much life on the planet, getting rid of those pesky dinosaurs, that it led to an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, according to a about 1% decrease in these oxygen isotope compounds, beginning at the boundary that spanned about 100,000 years. So what this means is the Chicxulub impact released enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to turn up the heat and to lead to greenhouse warming of the atmosphere that lasted 100,000 years. Yeah. What, talk about what, what kind of warming, like 100 degrees? No, that's crazy. But warming. Yeah, lots of warming. <laughs> hot. <laughs> hot. Hot out. It was hot out. I just wonder, are we like close? What are we, do you think we're approaching levels of like, you know, I, I never have context for how we relate to these historic, these, you know, eras past. Has the earth been in the same kind of wheelhouse of temperature? Right now we are very high in temperature. The temperature on the earth has been this high before, but it hasn't ever increased this quickly or that we have seen so according to this story from Science News, the seawater increased by about five degrees Celsius. That's the amount of change that they were able to determine. So Yeah, and that's a lot. I think that's a lot more than it sounds like because the seawater, you know how much that heat, how much caloric input you have to put to get the ocean to raise by five degrees? It's like a lot. Yeah. It's hot. Yep, it was hot. Absolutely. So... It was a very significant change, lots of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so, you know, understanding that it happened and having the evidence to support it is a big step forward. But then also it's going to be, like you said, important to be able to do the comparison now. Say, okay, this warming happened then, this warming's happening now. What other changes happened environmentally? What else went extinct as a result of a fairly rapid increase in temperature, similar to what's happening here and now. And then in kind of cool but strange news related to human health, researchers, we have been looking into the gut-brain axis, right? 
how the gut and the brain communicate. We know the the gut is like the brain of the rest of the body. It's got all sorts of neurons in it, lots of serotonin neurons. There's a lot of stuff happening there, but there is actually a big connection between what happens in the gut and what happens in the brain. And research has been suggesting that there's a lot of stuff that happens in relation to the microbial environment in the gut and what happens in the brain. And in this recent paper that was published in Nature on May 16th, researchers have shown a connection in a mouse model between microbes in the gut of mice that have been induced to develop experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, which is a model of multiple sclerosis, and inflammation in the brain. What they were able to show is that they are two molecules. There's TGF-alpha and VEGF-beta that the mouse microglia, these cells in the brain that support, that are like the immune cells that support the brain structures. They found that these proteins bind to receptors on astrocyte, on the, on the surfaces of astrocytes and modulate the behavior of the astrocytes. So there's basically this communication back and forth between TGF-alpha and VEGF-B that actually influence the behavior of the astrocytes and the microglia. And so the signals that they saw change, in 2016, they found that microbial metabolites of the amino acid tryptophan interact with a receptor that is on the surface of astrocytes. It's called the aural hydrocarbon receptor. And the microglia possess this aural hydrocarbon receptor, and the metabolites released by the animal's gut microbes influence the TGF-alpha and the VEGF-B. And so they tested this in this new study, feeding the rodents a diet that had been depleted of tryptophan. The microglia in the mice actually made a pro-inflammatory VEGF protein, which activated the astrocytes. And the mice had more symptoms of multiple sclerosis. And then when they added tryptophan into the diet again, they released an anti-inflammatory TGF-alpha that controlled the astrocyte activity and the MS symptoms abated. So they showed that what was happening in the gut of the mice was affecting the microglia. They showed that the brain cells pick up those, the signals through this receptor on the surface of the astrocytes, and the receptor regulates the production of these two proteins, the TGF and the VEGF, and therefore the levels of inflammation. They also showed in cultured human microglia, astrocytes, and tissue samples from multiple sclerotic lesions that tryptophan metabolites, the receptor, and the two proteins play a similar role in human cells in the dish as they do in mice. And so the question now is, is there some kind of dietary aspect that could be controlled in patients with multiple sclerosis? Is there also some other target that can be used here? Should they be uh, targeting this receptor? You know, what's happening in detail with these antibodies, with the microbes? The researchers say they don't think that AHR, the receptor, is the only pathway by which the central nervous system resident cells sense microbial metabolites. And we don't think that VEGFB and TGF-alpha are the only molecules that mediate the crosstalk between microglia and astrocytes. And that's something we're actively working on. I heard tryptophan. Does that mean 
Thanksgiving turkey protect right? us? Right, <laughs> turkey to protect you. <laughs> Another reason to get together with family <laughs> if you needed one. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we say all the time, you know, the difference between mice and humans is really large, but the fact that it, at least with the cells in the dish model, they were able to see similar effects. I mean, that's promising in the least. Yeah, but I mean, to just get rid of tryptophan or add tryptophan and yeah, that right. influenced inflammation, that's crazy. Seems simple. I'm sure it's much more complex on the cell level, but the intervention there is really straightforward. High hope. High hopes, indeed. I have thanks to give for that. Thanksgiving for that research. I've got some no Thanksgiving, though, too. No. I, not, I don't want to be anti with my story, but I get so nervous about these types of stories I'm about to tell you about. The first one, it's a regulatory story, first of all. This isn't the science, but it's really important. This is scientists in Japan, you know, Japan, where the birthplace of uh, the IPS cell. Mm -hmm. They've really been pushing very hard to not commercialize, but translate the approach into therapies. And now scientists in Japan have permission to treat people who have heart disease with cells produced by cellular reprogramming. So this is the only the, only the second clinical application of iPS cells that's been approved. The first, I think pretty famously, was in the eye. And we've talked a lot about how that went and the arc of that. And I think that kind of informs this approach, which makes me wonder why they're moving forward with this. Anyway, on May 16th, Japan's health ministry gave doctors the green light to take these wafer-thin sheets of tissue that are derived from IPS cells and graft them directly onto diseased human hearts. This is a team led by cardiac surgeon Yoshiki Sawa at Osaka University. The idea is that the, the sheets will help regenerate the organ's muscle in the damaged hearts and will kind of mitigate the progression of disease in patients that have had heart attacks, which ultimately they succumb to heart failure. So the initial application is going to be given to three people over the next year, and the team will then seek approval to conduct a clinical trial in 10 patients. If it proves safe, treatment could then be sold commercially under Japan's, quote, fast track system for regenerative medicine. Why does such a thing exist? <laughs> the system, which was introduced in 2014, it aims to speed the availability of potentially life-saving procedures. But of course, critics, myself amongst them, would say the system is a bit flawed because it allows treatments to be sold in patients before you have the sufficient long-term data to be collected and interpreted, showing that the procedures not only work in the long term, but that they're safe. Just to get down to the nitty-gritty and the technique, Sawa and his colleagues, they use the IPS cells to create a sheet of about 100 million heart muscle cells. Sounds like a lot of cells, but that's, a, that's you know, it is a <laughs> lot of cells. I'm not going to lie, especially uh, at this level, uh, at this stage of the therapeutic application of IPS cells. That's a huge amount of cells, but it's a sh relatively small sheet. It wouldn't cover the whole heart. Anyway, the studies have been, these preclinical studies have been done in pigs, and the team showed that when you graph the sheets of cells, which are about 0.1 millimeters thick wow. and four centimeters long, so that gives you an idea of the scale, when you graph them onto the heart, you can improve the organ's function. And Sawa says that the cells do not seem to integrate into the heart tissue. Does not, they don't seem to. Well, that's assuring. 
He thinks instead they release growth factors that help to regenerate the damaged muscle. And that's probably true, but I think we really need to consider the level of integration. I remember we had episode 113, Nanad Bursak, on the show, and he was telling us about his work with the heart patch. I mean, it was the same idea. And my takeaway there was that this, the graft does not integrate. In fact, a bit worryingly, you get a kind of fibrotic layer in between the actual heart epicardium and the graft. So there's new tissue that's created in the context of these grafts. And I can only imagine that that is not functional myocardium, although it might be. So I worry about impediment to function. I worry about a lot of things with these kinds of studies. It's a regulatory story, but I think it hints at the, the zeal with which the regulatory apparatus in Japan is, is racing to get these IPS-based therapies into practice. But I think they've learned from their own experience that the IPS approach may not be the most practical or safe. So I'm a little bit kind of surprised, but I don't know. I'm a real Luddite anti-progressive, maybe. <laughs> You've got so many worries, so many concerns. <laughs> the idea that it, even though it might not, the patch itself might not be integrating into the tissue, if it's releasing factors that allow that muscle tissue to heat to heal itself, not create scar tissue, and to actually, as it said in the pig, increase organ function. I mean, that is a positive direction to go. I mean, but the fast track aspect is concerning. And I know we have issues here in the U.S. with things going to market too quickly. People get an idea and go, we can sell it to people. <laughs> <laughs> and then people are harmed. It could be amazing. But the idea of a, the heart patch that stimulates the heart to do what it should do naturally, but better, was great. Yeah, it's a big idea. It's yeah. a big idea. I think we got to see how the details of the trial, what are the patients, if it's the acute phase, if it's people who are like end terminal congestive heart failure. We'll see when the details shake out, but uh, definitely something to keep our eye on. Another thing that I've been keeping my eye on is my old mentor, my dear Dr. Ali Tamati Brabanlu. He really made me who I am. All right, I'm not going to get all weepy, but he's a great dude. He has a great study, all right, at Rockefeller University. He's always been into studying human embryogenesis, you know. He said, who needs a model system? Let's look at the human system. It's what got him from the frog, where he made his big impact, into human embryonic stem cells in the first place, and he's made a lot of big impact, all right? So for the first time, researchers now have watched the human organizer cells direct the formation of an embryo's top, bottom, front, and back, all the axes. You know, it's called the organizer because it does this. It kind of creates the uh, body plan. So Ali and his team, they did this by developing a technique that sidesteps this regulatory restrictions on research with human embryos by grafting human cells onto chick embryos. This was just published uh, a week ago, May 23rd in Nature. And it's a method that could supplant the use of human embryos to model development. So just a little history, the organizer cells, they were discovered almost 100 years ago by Speeman and Mangold in salamanders. They took transplanted cells from the back of one salamander embryo and they put it onto the front of another. And that second embryo, the recipient of that graft, formed a second salamander, the kind of conjoined salamander there formed a from that one explant of the organizer. And this suggested that these there's a little clutch of cells that can organize all their neighbors in the host to 
create the complex array of structures that make an animal. So since then, we've identified organized cells and embryos of other model species, but we've never seen that in a human development. Of course, we know it's there, but we can't really test it because of ethical guidelines that are all very obvious. But Ali's group, they did push it already in a group uh, study about two years ago. They were the first to grow human, along with uh, Magdalena Zernica goats. There's actually another story we're talking about today, but they published in parallel this formation of or growth of human embryos out to the 14-day mark in vitro. And they showed that they could form these complex structures, but they didn't see the organizer. So that's what kind of was the rationale for it in this experiment. And then what they did here is they bypassed that 14-day limit, which has been put in place for explants of human, bona fide human embryos, by taking human embryonic stem cells and making them into embryo-like structures, similar to our guest today, we got to talk to him about that. And they cultured these cells on like a little micro patterned lattice, something that was 22 millimeters across. And that forcing the cells to stay within this confined region instead of growing laterally, spreading out, it made them form various cell layers that are seen in earlier embryos, especially when they treated them with a series of growth factors that are pertinent to early uh, organization morphogenesis in the embryo. And the Tests revealed when you looked at the markers, they showed that there are clusters of cells that express genes that were organized specific. And then this was the real coup de grace. They transplanted those little pre-fab kind of organizer and the micro lattice. They transplanted them into 12-hour chicken embryos. That's kind of the equivalent in chick development of a 14-day-old embryo. So they're kind of taking it to the precipice of where they were in human and going beyond. And what they showed that they formed a secondary axis, all right, a second nervous system. And that mimics the findings of the famous Spiemann-Mangold experiment. So it looks like uh, we've arrived at a clutch of cells that looks like the organizer. Of course, you can't really prove that until you see like a, an embryo actually form. And they didn't get these chicks to hatch. And if they had, there'd be a lot of people bugging out about it, probably. So it's probably for the best. But I think they're moving in that direction, provided that they uh, can get permissions to do that. Because that is kind of strange, I guess. Secondary neural axis, part human derived in a chick organized by human cells. It's, I don't know what the ethical quandaries there are, but there's certainly something to be considered. Kiki, how would you like to have not your mind, but the seed of your mind organizing a chicken mind. What kind of a chicken would that be? Brilliant. <laughs> it would be such a such a smart chicken and <laughs> <laughs> which would be very unusual because chickens are not known for their intelligence. Let me They're tell you not. That. They, no. That's a, that you ever heard of a chicken head? Yeah, it would make you a <laughs> literal chicken head. It's uh, not what we want. I control the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> you organize the chickens. I Let's organize the specific. It. I would like to put these chickens over here in this corner. Stay over there, chickens. No. Oh, man. Oh. You would be so good at that, actually. We might have to put you into the IRB. Maybe instead of talking about cat herding, we'll talk about chicken organizing. <laughs> That's right. That's what's next. That's some next level <laughs> stuff right there. All right. On to the next story. This is about the mammary gland. Okay. So the mammary gland, it's mother's milk. It's the tissue that produces milk during lactation, allowing survival of young mammalian offspring. It's what defines us as a order or a class or whatever that is. I was never really good with that whole 
Linnaeus thing. Is that what that is, Linnaeus? I'm way off here. Let me get back on track. All right. So it's unclear how the mammary gland develops. That's the thing. And not for long, though, because uh, a new study in nature cell biology led by Cedric Blampon. Good segue there. He was also did his postdoc at Rockefeller right next door to Ali Brivanu, my man. Well, he's a well-bio-investigator now, Cedric, that is, and professor at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, Belgium. And they have identified mechanisms that regulate mammary gland development. They use lineage tracing. Cedric is famous for his lineage tracing. They combine it here with molecular profiling, single cell sequencing, and some functional experiments. Uh, this was first author Aline Widart and colleagues. They demonstrated that the mammary gland initially develops from multipotent progenitors during the early steps of embryonic mammary gland morphogenesis. Okay, And this is important because postnatally, the mammary gland kind of reconstitution and homeostasis is mediated by lineage-restricted stem cells. So it's different in embryogenesis. They're multipotent. To understand the molecular mechanisms underlying this multipotency, they developed a novel strategy that isolated embryonic mammary gland stem cells. And then this is the first time this has been done. They looked at their molecular features by single-cell seq. So just a little background. Dr. Blampan and his group, they previously showed there was this one gene that is the most frequently mutated gene in patients with breast cancer, and that that gene, it reactivates a multipotent program in cells that are typically unipotent, as I said. Combining that knowledge with this new study, the researchers showed that embryonic mammary gland progenitors express the same genes as those that are expressed during reactivation of multipotency that happens during breast cancer development. So tying it all together, this is an important study because it, it not only identifies the multipotent embryonic progenitor cells in the mammary gland and uncovers the molecular features associated with multipotency of this cell population, but it also identifies molecular mechanisms that regulate the switch from this multipotency to unipotency during normal development, and the switch back is inferred during cancer. So they're kind of like creating this whole constellation of regulatory network and phenotype and function that surrounds and links, I guess, both mammary gland development as well as pathological consequences of reversion of mammary gland unipotent cells to a multipotent and oncogenic fate. So this is some deep insight into that which gives us all our first taste of life. That's right. And also, you know, there's the question of why do men have breasts? Well, there's the gland and its production as well. So the, there are now these targets. How do hormones act on them? What are the specific instructions that regulate this change? And, you know, men also get breast cancer as well as women, which is important. Are, there, are the things that change in male breast cancer slightly different? than in the female form of the disease. I think these questions can all be answered based on some of the information that's coming out of this study. Oh, yeah. A lot of action. Cedric Lampin. I hope he's not smoking cigarettes anymore. Cedric, if you're listening. What can you do with the Europeans? They do what they want, you know? <laughs> you're right. You're right. I guess they've earned it. Well, he, with his productivity, I mean, we need him in our lives. I this know. guy puts out like two, three nature papers a year. Anyway, to each his own. 
onto the brain. You know, Kiki, everybody loves the brain. So I'll end with the brain, the most funded organ. I'm so sick of the brain, but I got to hand it to this I story. I love the brain. Oh, brains. Bring it. You're going to be organizing chicken brains before long. <laughs> All right. So, you know, stem cells in the brain, they divide into mature into neurons, participating in all the brain's various functions. Most important and salient that we think about is memory. Okay. So in this paper published by Cell Stem Cell, scientists at Helmholtz, Zentrum, München, and Ludwig Maximilian, and some other stuff, they call it LMU. They've shown how this works. Okay. This is led by uh, Magdalena Zernike-Goetz, who directs the institute. So what they did, they found that there's these ion channels that play a critical role in mediating force signals to neural stem cells to activate them. Okay, so we always talk about secreted factors and niche factors and mitogenic factors, 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 force. You know, there's a biomechanical element to development to life. And uh, I think here we see the intersection of force and the molecular biology of the neural stem cell. They've showed that the flow of cerebrospinal fluid is the key signal for neural stem cell self-renewal. Okay, to quote Dr. Goetz, neural stem cells in the brain can divide and mature into neurons, and this process plays important roles in various regions of the brain, including olfactory sense and memory. These cells are located in what is known as the neurogenic stem cell niche, one of which is located at the walls of the lateral ventricles, where they're in contact with circulating cerebrospinal fluid. And that's the key, ladies and gentlemen. The cerebrospinal fluid fills the brain and its roles are still understood, but this work highlights the roles of the force, the sheer force provided by the flow of the fluid. It's not a chemical signal, it's a physical signal. So under the guidance of the lead author, Dr. David Petrick, they discovered that brain stem cells are influenced by this flow or sheer force. To quote Dr. Petrick, the whole mechanism is controlled by the ENAC, the ENAC molecule. So that abbreviation stands for epithelial sodium NA channel. Okay, mm -hmm. and it describes the channel protein on the cell surface through its sodium ion stream into the cell's interior. Again, quoting Dr. Petrick, we were able to show in an experimental model that brain stem cells are no longer able to divide in the absence of ENAC. Conversely, a stronger ENAC function promotes cell proliferation. So there you go, gain and loss of function, they see a very clear link. Further tests showed that the function of ENAC is augmented by sheer force exerted on the cells in the cerebrospinal fluid. This physical stimulation causes a channel protein to open for a longer time and allows sodium ions to flow into the cell, thus stimulating division. So that's the mechanism. It seems like that just keeping the channel open longer increases the flow of ions, and that leads to division, self-renewal. Fascinating. Quote, the results came as a big surprise since ENAC had previously only been shown for its functions in the kidneys and the lungs. That's quoting uh, Dr. Goetz. She and her team now want to look and to better explore the signals mediated by ions and stem cells and clarify the extent to which these findings are relative to treatment. And this is the big deal. There's all these ENAC blockers that are already in play for treatment of hypertension. So... If you know now that they could influence stem cells in the brain, brain function, perhaps memory, hey, there's a whole class of drugs already been proved by the FDA. We're going to be lining the pockets of pharmaceutical companies in the hope that we'll make ourselves smarter. But I can live with that. If it actually works, we'll have to see about that, Kiki. Yeah. I mean, the question is, 
as we get older, our proliferation of brain cells decreases. And so what does that mean for our cerebrospinal fluid? What's happening as we get older? Is the fluid decreasing? Is that shear force decreasing as we get older related to things like hypertension because of cardiovascular disease and is because of issues with fluid retention and aspects of, I guess, the compartmentalization of different fluid components within the body? How does that affect what's going on in the brain and the health of the brain? And so, I don't know, I think it opens up a lot of questions. And to me, it seems like the ENAC blocker would potentially be if it gets into the brain and affects those ventricular cells, would it potentially, because it's blocking that pathway, limit the amount of sodium that's going in and therefore decrease proliferation, which would potentially be bad. Yeah, that's the twist, Keeks. I mean, we don't know. It it makes you wonder about all the side effects of people that may be taking these drugs already. It makes you wonder about the intersection. Everyone's talking about physical activity and, you know, memory. There's all these pieces of the puzzle that intersect. And I think this is another piece that kind of forces us to reexamine the playing field. You know, I expect nothing less out of Dr. Goss. They say, too, the results came as a big surprise. I mean, but seriously, we look at these molecular signals, these little tiny things, and it's always supposed to be some molecular cascade of events. But this is like fluid pushing on an ion channel. Something like this, this kind of finding is always just fascinating to me because I wouldn't have thought of that. It's just fluid flow. Really? Makes you wonder what else, right? What else? Yeah. Great. Well, that's it, Keeks. I'm leaving you on that note. Look at you. You're flabbergasted. I love it. It's stimulating a lot of thought ah, for me right the sheer now. flow. The sheer flow is That's going nice. on in your neural stem cell niche. Now I'm thinking, how can I just maintain that sheer force and that cerebrospinal fluid for as long as I can? That's what Take I, your head around. I got to do that. It's good for my brain. Bathe those brain cells. Keep them happy and healthy. Now it is time for us to move on from our roundup into the interview. That was a lot of fun, but we have more fun to come. All right. So before we get into the interview, Stem Cell Technologies invites you to learn more about the Stem Diff Trilineage Differentiation Kit. It's a simple culture assay to functionally validate the ability of new or established human ES and IPS cell lines to differentiate to the three germ layers, mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. To learn more about stem cells trilineage differentiation kit, please visit www.stemcell.com trilineage. That's stemcell.com trilineage. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can view the recorded webinar at stemcell.com slash targeting self-renewal. All right, so now on to our interview. Our guest today is stem cell biologist and tissue engineer, Dr. Nicolas Rivron. Dr. Rivron, he leads the Laboratory for Synthetic Embryology at the Merlin Institute for Technology-Driven Regenerative Medicine at the Hubrick Institute for Developmental Biology and Stem Cell Research. His laboratory created the blastoid system, the first model of early pre-implantation embryos made in a dish from stem cells. His laboratory also develops platforms and technologies to induce, control, and analyze self-organization and organogenesis in a dish. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Rivon. 
welcome to you too. <laughs> this is very nice to be here. I'm very happy to be on that podcast. It's wonderful to have you on our show today. So can you go into a little bit more detail about what you do in your laboratory? What really is the focus of your work? So we are interested in uh, embryology, but embryos are very difficult to work with. And it has been strong limitations and people have been doing fantastic work for the last uh, hundred years, but it has been very difficult to tackle some questions. And so we take a, a little bit of a step aside and uh, we try to rebuild uh, the embryo uh, using uh, only stem cells. And we do this because this allows us to, for example, generate very large numbers of uh, those structures, dose the number of cells very precisely, do genetic knockouts, all kinds of things that are very difficult to do with uh, normal embryos. Nicholas, excuse me, I'm not going to be able to pull off the French pronunciation like uh, Kiki did so elegantly there, so I'm going to call you Nick. Nick, we're talking about something, I think, that deserves, and we talked about this in our previous episode, actually, but just by way of review, very briefly, I talked a little bit with Kiki about like kind of the progression and the arc of these systems with based, I think, strongly in stem cells, embryonic stem cells, but we kind of have progressed from a, a system where we had embryonic stem cells that could contribute to chimeras, and then we had you know, embryonic stem cells that could account for the whole embryo in the tetraploid system. And then we've moved since then to kind of uh, gametes as an intermediate. We can make the gametes in vitro that'll make uh, live fertile embryos. And now this is really revolutionary, a seminal step forward where we've divorced ourselves from any kind of progenitor cell making an embryo. You're making an embryo out of cells in these blastoids. Can you give us you know, an idea of maybe your inspiration, your thought process, and some of the technical hurdles you had to overcome to arrive at this amazing result? We are still using stem cell lines. So uh, one could argue that we are still using indirectly uh, sperm and egg because we still have to generate those cell lines using a normal embryo. But indeed, this is opening the possibility to do this with other uh, stem cell lines, such as IPS or ITS cells. So indeed, this might at some point like allow to decouple the embryo from egg and sperm. But what the way we are doing this is that yeah, we are just standing on the shoulders of, of giants. Yeah, or like uh, they are like there's been like tremendous work that has been done with embryonic stem cells and uh, to find all those states that are those so-called naive states and the embryonic stem cells are able to form the whole embryo now. So through this tetraploid complementation assay. On the other hand, there's Jeannette Ronson, who is a very inspiring professor in Canada, who derived trophoblast stem cells. And those trophoblast stem cells can be cultured also in the dish and they can be multiplied indefinitely. And when you re-inject them uh, back into a blastocyst, they actually contribute to uh, the placenta only. So we have two stem cell types that theoretically could be recombined to form the whole embryo plus the whole placenta, meaning the whole organism in that case, knowing that the embryonic stem cells can also potentially form some uh, primitive endoderm and neurosac. 
and people have been like thinking about this experiment for a very long time. Uh, you know, like a lot of people tried this. There's, there's not a huge conceptual gap, you know, in like thinking uh, of building an embryo. But there was like some technical hurdles, and uh, it, it has been very difficult to promote, to trigger those cells to converse and to self-organize. And there are there are two uh, main hurdles, that uh, two main roadblocks that we had to pass. The first one is to be able to pull very small number of cells together. And uh, this is not necessarily easy to have like very tiny amounts of embryonic stem cells plus very tiny amounts of trophoblast stem cells together. And to do this very reproducibly and on large scales. And to do this, we to, to pull those, those cells correctly, we used some uh, microsystems that I developed uh, during my PhD time and that allows to do this type of, this type of thing. Second thing is that once you have put the, those two stem cell types together, you have to find the cocktail that is going to trigger the reaction. To find the cocktail, you need to first uh, make a list of all the factors that are known to be active during that specific moment of development. And here we are, we based ourselves on all the knowledge that has been generated by all those developmental biologists before us. And then after, you have to find the perfect combination of those cocktails. And in order to do this, you have to be able to screen. Once again, the, the platform was crucial here because you can, using this platform, you can like screen for like hundreds and hundreds of combinations and find the right one to fine-tune the, the process. So these are the two roadblocks that uh, at the end were not so fantastic, but you know, like we turned out that we had this in our hands. You know. Kind of like you're at a cocktail party and you're the person who's you know a little bit about this guest and you know a little bit about the other guest and you've got to bring them together over a drink. <laughs> Start the conversation. That's exactly it. You know? And once you trigger the reaction, then everything goes very smooth because they remember where they come from and they start doing exactly the small dance that they have to do. You know? And here you go, you get an embryo. Nine months later, that's a baby. You know? Oh my goodness. What kind of cocktail party are you guys at? <laughs> it's a great cocktail party. <laughs> what I find fascinating is this idea that there are these, you know, you have initially after fertilization in the entire process, you know, you have the division of the initial egg cell, right? You know, it's been fertilized, it starts dividing, and then at some point it splits into these two cell types and they know how to communicate together when they're in that blastocyst. But in your situation, you're just bringing them together in this artificial situation, in a dish, and trying to get them to talk to each other to continue what would be a natural process. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, like those stem cell lines, trophoblast stem cells, embryonic stem cells, they are uh, in vitro analogs, meaning that they are not exactly the same as uh, the natural cells from the blastocyst or from the morilab, which is this little bit earlier stage. Yeah. They have been massively expanded in the lab, so they lost some functions. There are a lot of uh, epigenetic uh, aberrations that occur. The gene expression profiles are also slightly different. You have to like renormalize their behavior. And this is why we trigger the reaction with this cocktail. You know, that's, that's the first thing. So we have a couple of they kind of lost some abilities. For example, they lost the ability to, uh, for the outer cells, the trophoblast cells, to cavitate. And so we had to like trigger the reaction and we have to find the signal to do this. And it turns out to be the wind signal that is, that is doing this. But once you have uh, kind of initiated this, 
you uh, the, the things start to go by themselves. You know? So this is where the self-organization process occurs. You know? And uh, self-organization is a word that is actually coming from physics. Huh? But, uh, it, it means that individual parts do not see the big picture, but just using local information, they are able to like resume the whole process at a bigger scale. You know? We were actually like doing this because we thought, and that was our initial hypothesis, that that the recapitulating the niche like this, like those this globe of trophoblast stem cells that is englobing those embryonic stem cells, would help the embryonic stem cells to to remember where they come from you know, and to, to kind of normalize them. And we actually we had it all wrong, you know, because it turned out that it was exactly the opposite. We did an assay that is called single cell sequencing uh, that allows to profile uh, every gene that is expressed in every cell. And uh, in this unbiased way, we looked for uh, what are the main interactions here. And the main interaction was not the outer cells taking care of the inner cells, but the inner cells inducing the development of the outer uh, cells. So this was the very surprising result, but it turned out that from there on, we, we, we built uh, things and we discovered a couple of things. Wow. So we're talking a lot about this organization and, you know, it's salient because we talked today actually on this episode about uh, the workout of Ali Brubonlu's lab with the organizer derived from human pluripotent stem cells. And you just talked about how it's, you know, you were surprised by the directionality of it. Is there a kind of a, a correlate? I mean, the organizer work from Brubonlu lab was done in, in human system. I know that trophoblast stem cells in the human system are a bit more elusive, but are you uh, pursuing a similar kind of scope of work in the human system right now? This would be extremely interesting. Uh, however, it is clear that at the moment it's not technically feasible because we don't have lines of human trophoblast stem cells. So uh, there are a couple of labs around the world which are working on solving that puzzle at the moment. And uh, we hope that maybe, hopefully shortly, those human trophoblast stem cell lines will be available. That's the first point, which is a technical point. And besides this, there's also uh, an ethical issue. And uh, doing such an experiment is actually, it is not allowed right now in the country where I'm, I'm living, which is the Netherlands. And you can ask the ethical committee to do this type of work. And uh, this is something that we have to discuss. The most important is to uh, understand why we want to do those type of experiments. You know? And uh, of course, it will, from the scientific perspective, it will uh, bring like enormous insight in, uh, into processes that are just impossible to look at. The only access of, uh, to human embryos at the moment is uh, are the uh, blastocysts that are issued from IVF. And uh, we know that those uh, blastocysts are not optimal. And they are, of course, very scarce. So research on those embryos is extremely difficult to do. Using such a human blastoid, we could like, tackle scientific questions that would be uh, impossible to answer otherwise. Yeah. It's issues of the trophoblast layer in the embryo that cause problems of implantation, that it's the trophoblast that's actually communicating with the placenta to allow implantation. And so from part of the significance of what you've done is shown that these blastoids, these organized cells can implant in the mouse placenta. So are you starting to look at some of those genetic markers, at some of the molecular markers that are part of that communication cascade? Yeah, very much. And this is so there are two uh, important points from our study in terms that are kind of beyond science points. The first one is that we were able 
to do a structure that can form the whole organism using stem cells only. The second one is that this structure that we formed is actually a very early one, meaning that it is uh, representing an embryo that did not implant into the uterus yet. So that's very, very early. It's like uh, in the mouse, which is the system that we are using, this is uh, on day three so after fertilization. So we, could, we are able to like transfer uh, those uh, blastoids back into the uterus of a mouse and we observed there that uh, indeed they are implanting uh, very nicely. There's very little that is known about this process of implantation, and we had a, a hard time convincing ourselves that we are actually like looking at something that is real. For example, I'm saying this because, for example, if you uh, insert uh, just uh, microbeads inside the uterus of a mouse, you also get uh, some type of reaction. You know? We have to understand what is specific here. And uh, there's uh, the work of uh, there's, uh, the lab of uh, Brent Bunny that did some very nice experiments doing microarrays to find the genes that are specifically induced by the blastocyst into the endometrium of the uterus of mice. You know? And he came up with a couple of genes, including uh, this one that is called LDH3A1. And we actually found out that uh, LDH3A1 is also induced in the endometrium of the mouse by the blastoid when the implant. So we think that there is some level of specificity. We could very easily now uh, compare blastoids with uh, what we call trophospheres, which are trophoblastem cells cultured exactly in the same condition as blastoids, but without the embryonic stem cells. And so these are kind of empty blastoids. And uh, those uh, trophospheres are, they are more differentiated and because the embryonic stem cells are not here, and they are also uh, smaller, they stop proliferating. So we clearly showed that the embryonic stem cells are actually maintaining the proliferation and the stemness of uh, the trophoblast here. And when we implanted those two in parallel, we actually uh, saw that uh, the trophospheres have a largely diminished potential to implant into the uterus. So somehow, the embryonic stem cells, they are maintaining the proliferation they are guiding the morphogenesis of the trophoblast. Altogether, this is maintaining the potential for the trophoblast to implant there. And as you said, we know that for human IVF uh, blastocyst, the main problem is the implantation. And this is, of course, due to those trophoblasts. So we can start now to investigate those processes. Even though, you know, mouse and human is very different, we have to be very careful with what we found here. Nonetheless, I mean, having a model of implantation as accessible as this, it's a black box. So you're kind of shining a light on something that no one's seen before. But along those lines, implantation, I mean, that's the end game here. Can we talk about the conceptus that you get from the blastoid embryo? It's not, you know, a viable, fertile embryo at this point. So we can touch upon that. But I guess the bit larger question is, do you think that we will get to the point where we will be able to get a blastoid to form a viable and fertile embryo? And if not, or if so, what do you think the obstacles we need to surmount there? Let's be very clear about this. We did not form a mouse. We wish we had, but we know that uh, the cells get somehow disorganized very quickly. The blastoids are implanting, they are proliferating, they are elongating, they are generating multiple cell types that are very uh, relevant to those early stages of development. And the cocoon around the blastoids is very nicely forming, but the cells get disorganized. So the big question is why? You know, like, so we might have like work for the next 20 years. You know? <laughs> we, we, we don't know. 
we know that uh, we must have like a perfect third uh, tissue that appears within uh, the blastocyst and that appears but not fully in the blastoid, which is called primitive endoderm. Yeah. And uh, the primitive endoderm is encasing the embryo, and this is what is allowing the next morphogenetic uh, move to occur. Yeah. This is one obvious problem, and uh, we've been actually like working a lot on this to see to use different methods uh, to form uh, primitive endoderm cells. There is no clear theoretical roadblocks to not form uh, an embryo using uh, only stem cells. You know, but we are at the very beginning on this of this whole field. You know, like we don't see at the point what would prevent us from doing it. But we could make a whole list now also of things that you know could go wrong along the way. You know. We are just opening like something, and we hope that. Of course, we can form something nice, but, uh, you know, you never know. You mentioned the the ethical aspects, but I mean, this goes back to, it harkens back to the very beginning of stem cell research when, you know, the public outcry was, oh, we can't do stem cell research because people are going to take stem cells and make babies out of them. This sounds like, you know, this is the step-by-step progression to actually figuring out how the cells work to be able to do that, even though we don't necessarily want to do it. You know, we don't want to create an army of clones, all us Star Wars, but... No, because, yeah, this is... So, like, this whole uh, cloning uh, thing is is very much of a fantasy. And uh, there's... I don't know anybody serious who's actually, like, trying to clone people. Of course, the goal is to understand those early steps of development and to use stem cells for the benefit of society. There is no way that people want to do the experiment which are, it's totally forbidden and it's also pointless in our view. But what is important is what we can do that, that will be uh, beneficial to society. There are many things that we can look at. There is the phenomena of uh, the disease of uh, infertility. You know that uh, women are rising in, in the professional world and they are delaying more and more the moment when they, are, they want to have babies and it turns out that this is leading to a big uh, surge of uh, infertility, especially in the U.S. There was an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago. It's clearly showing that, uh, and this is a societal trend, you know, and we have to do something about this. This is one, one side of the coin. You know, The other side of the coin is that you have to be able to like know exactly when you want to have uh, such a child, and this is the problem of contraception. You know. There are a lot of problems right now with contraception. This is on top of the list of the WHO and also of the Bill and Menina foundation, uh, this is a huge, huge problem. So this type of system might allow also to understand how we can uh, prevent implantation and uh, you uh, develop better contraceptives. So these are the, the two sides two side of, of the coin, and we hope that we can like find ways to solve uh, part of those issues. So just quickly, because I'm always so curious about, you know, science, when you have a big story like yours, I think Kiki was kind of alluding to this, that it's an ethical controversy, however you look at it. You know, sensible people, I think, will realize the medical import of this, but there's always the crackpots out there that are raising the alarm bells. So given the high profile of this story, do you get a lot of heat from weird people, like sending emails like, you are the devil and blah, blah, blah. Are you relatively insulated from that kind? And if you do no, get some heat, can you please share some of the crazy stuff that these people say? You know, that was a big concern of me when we released the paper because, you know, 
we are really trying to like do positive things and we really don't want to like fall into like this type of argumentation because like we don't this is not what we do you know like uh, but i think that the message went through very well you know like uh, we talked about uh, those issues of uh, fertility and fertility we talked also about the embryonic origin of diseases that are those minor flows that occur like very early in the in, in the embryo and that are, might lead to like that are contributing to the generation of uh, the, the, the formation of uh, chronic disease way later on and we did not get so much of those weird stories. However, somebody called me from U.S. Actually, oh, of course, so it's I, from the U.S. <laughs> no, but it was a very nice person, very kind. He was a man, and his, his, with his wife, they were trying to have a child for a very long time, and he was asking for advices of, uh, you know, like uh, whether there are like different ways to go around the, the, this, this clinical problem, and and I, uh, we had a very long discussion. The guy person was very kind and I tried to uh, to explain that you know this is not what we do this is I am not even able to like answer this type of question but you should uh, there are plenty of different variations in the IVF clinics and you can do uh, some uh, genetic uh, test and etc uh, etc et that's that's pretty much the only uh, little bit out of the box uh, uh, person that uh, that we got on online you know. to be specific a DIY make your own Blastoid guy from the U.S. has a biosafety cabinet somewhere with your protocols making embryos. That's what you're <laughs> no, telling me, Nicholas? No, 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 not, not at all. I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You didn't say that. I said that. My apologies. Next time, though, you just give them Dalen's phone number. Tell them to call him to talk about the IVF issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, biohacking, yeah. Okay, so uh, we are coming to the end of our time together. And at the end of our interviews now, we like to ask one last question of the people that we are speaking with. And we usually, you know, have a roulette of three questions. And your question for today is, what was your worst or what has been your worst science blunder? You know, like this is a huge question is impossible because 90% of the experiments that we do just go wrong, you know, like until we find the right way to do it, you know, this is just failure after failure after failure, you know, like, so this is very difficult to choose, you know, like, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, like, uh, what would be the the worst one? Or well, we've, you know, like, we had so many contaminations in the lab, we had like we broke so many bottles of bad chemicals that like contaminated the whole room and they were like classical disasters. But you know, we are still doing okay. So we did not pass away yet. You have ten percent success. I think you're <laughs> above average. But I think it's important <laughs> to note there for the people out there, for both the people in science as well as those outside of science, one, the people outside of science, we have to disillusion you. A lot of the work is very boring, which you already knew. But a lot of it <laughs> fails. And there's a lot of disasters along the way. You oh, only yeah, read about yeah. the glamour. And for all you scientists out there who think you're the worst scientists in the world, we're all terrible. We Keep just on. get through with a few experiments, <laughs> right? Keep on. But if you feel too bad, you can also do something else. You're like, there's not only science in life. You know? <laughs> but yeah, science is mostly about failure. That's the way. Would you have done if you hadn't ended up being a scientist? Is there anything else that you would have done? Yeah, we were discussing this with my wife lately, you know, and uh, we turned out uh, to say that yeah, we would just be happy with, to to live in the south of France and write some poetry. You know. That's what we are going to be end up doing, you know. <laughs> oh, I love it! 
amazing discoveries in science, a wonderful career, and then you retire to France, the south of France, great weather, good wine, great food, to write poetry. That's what we do. It should be bad poetry, but we'll be happy with it, you know, like... Uh... Well, it will be bad poetry because, no, I'm not saying you're a bad poet, but because you'll be just in a wonderful situation. I mean, good poetry doesn't take pain and suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The good art, you need to be in pain somehow. So I don't know. (laughs) Good life, bad poet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right point. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And everyone out there, thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for the next episode. All right, everyone. This concludes episode 118 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for another great show.